0: This is Conquering Columbus.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike, here. And I just wanted to start by saying thanks so much for tuning in. If you're new here, Conquering Columbus is a podcast about everyone who is conquering their field in central Ohio. We interview people to find out who they are and what led them to where they are today. And on this episode, we're talking with Jane Wolf, a best-selling biographer who recently released her third book, Burl journalism giant, and medical trailblazer. And during the show, we talk a lot about who Burl was and why he made such an impact on both Jane and the journalism community at large, as well as Jane's own story. And at the beginning of the show, we talk about Jane's early years in journalism working in the family business, the Columbus Dispatch.
0: I worked at the Dispatch during the summers growing up. I either worked in the morgue or I worked on the city desk. And one time when I was on the city desk, wait,
1: I. Wait, wait, wait. The morgue?
0: Yes, the morgue is the library. Got it. But <laughs> since the articles of our Already appeared. They're considered dead, okay. and so that's the I name was like, of the Wait, library. The
1: dispatch has dead people in an office below. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> okay. So okay, sorry. Later, we talk about how the negative outlook of the press in 2016 influenced her desire to write a biography about Burl Osborne
0: after the. 2016 election. At that time, reporters were really getting hammered. The press, the media, was just being called the enemy of the people. And reporters, according to some people, mm-hmm. at big rallies were
1: right. You know, we, we don't have to name names, but yes, there we were some people. Name, out there.
0: We won't name names, but words like alternative facts right. and fake news—that was a big one—were in the vernacular. And I thought, if ever there's somebody that was not an enemy of the people or somebody that uh, exhibited all the qualities that these corrupt reporters are not, that would be Burl Osborne.
1: We wrap up talking about Jane's next book about the first woman to fly solo around the world and hint, It's not Amelia Earhart. The subject is
0: Jerry Mock. I don't know if you've heard of her, but she was the first woman to fly solo around the world in 1964. Most people think it's Amelia Earhart or somebody right after Amelia Earhart, but Jerry, right here from Bexley, was the first to do it. And I've started researching a book about her life.
1: All right, folks, that's all I've got for this intro. As always, we hope you enjoy this interview. Let's get the show on the road. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. This is your co-host, Mike here, and it's me and Josh in the booth today. Josh is drinking his liquid death. What's going on?
2: Not much, man. Just hanging out and excited for our interview today.
1: Yeah. Well, the people don't know, but we skipped an interview last week, but it was your birthday. So we didn't have a recording last week, but Josh turned. uh, Do we want to tell the people what you turned or do you want to keep that a secret?
2: No, I think I'm still 25. I'm going to stay 25 for at least the next 10 years. 25 for the next 10 years. Yeah.
1: Fair enough. Fair (laughs) enough. Anything else going on in your life, Josh?
2: I'm just, you know, last interview. I think I was just coming out of anesthesia. This one, I'm uh, not doing that, so I'm full yeah. go, and so, I got all my brain cells. For everybody
1: it. that, well, I don't even know if that interview released before this one, so timing wise, we'll see what happens. But uh, Josh Keep people made it on home. Their
2: toes, they never know when I'm under anesthesia. Josh made it home from the interview
1: after being under anesthesia. So yeah, that was that was a little wild, but uh, I think that's a good place to uh, don't st-
2: don't worry. Uh, our future guests that we're gonna announce here in a second. The anesthesia was not during the interview. So we have no oh, anesthesia good. at Conquering right, No, you don't need to okay. be on anesthesia.
1: Okay, and and that voice you hear, that okay. lovely voice you hear is our guest for today. So joining us on the show, we are talking with Jane Wolf, author of two previous best-selling biographies, The Murchisons. Okay, Jane, you're going to have to tell me out. Did I say that one right? You did. The Murchisons, The Rise and Fall of a Texas Dynasty that was by St. Martin's Press and Blood Rich When Oil, Billions, High Fashion, and Royal Intimacies Are Not Enough, published by Little Brown and Company. and She is also a freelance writer for several publications, including the New York Times and Town & Country magazine. And most recently, she's celebrating the release of her latest biography, Burl, journalism giant and medical trailblazer. And Jane's family has owned the Columbus Dispatch for over 100 years. And so this biography covering Burl Osborne's life and rise from the coal mines of Appalachia to the pinnacle of journalism was close to home for Jane. So we're excited to talk with her about her story, her new book, how she got into writing biographies and journalism, and a whole lot more. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Jane.
0: Thank you, and thank you for having me on your show.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, and uh, we're excited to have you here. How's your, how's your day going so far? Good?
0: It's going great, yeah? yes. Are you is. guys,
1: so are you are probably got a lot going on with the release of the book, and what's that like?
0: Well, it's very busy, much busier than I was expecting it to be. Um, I'm doing, I think, Good Morning, Columbus or Good Day Columbus on one of those ones. Yes, one of them <laughs> on Monday, and I've been doing a lot of Texas media since yep. because Burl is from Texas, mm-hmm. and um, Columbus Dispatch is right. Has, of course, they're doing an article, uh, and I think that comes out a week from Sunday.
1: Fantastic. Fantastic. So
0: yes, I've been very busy with media.
2: And yep. what what about this compared to the previous books? Is this busier than? The when you released the last ones?
0: Well, I think they're about the same, but the last books were really big in on both coasts in New York and LA and Texas. And this one so far is much bigger in Texas. Mm -hmm. Um, but all over Texas people are interested because Burl was well known in the state.
1: Yeah. And so let's talk. So can you give us just a little bit of background on yourself? I know we already kind of gave you a little bit of an introduction, but kind of your story, kind of how you got into writing biographies, that sort of thing.
0: So there were two brothers that bought the Columbus Dispatch in 1905. Mm -hmm. One of them was Harry Preston Wolfe, and he was my great-grandfather. And my grandfather worked there, and my father worked there, and... I thought I would work there one day, but didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of an interesting story. I worked uh, at the dispatch during the summers growing up. I either worked in the morgue or mm-hmm. I worked on the city desk. And one time...
1: Wait, 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 the morgue?
0: Yes, the morgue is the library. Got it. <laughs> but since the uh, articles have already appeared, they're considered dead. Okay. And so that's the I name was of like, the wait, library. the
1: dispatch has... Dead people in an office below. <laughs> right. there. Yeah, that was, okay, so, okay, sorry. So
0: all those newspaper articles that have already run are dead articles. And so one day I was working on the City Desk and um, hoping to become a, a real re- City Desk reporter one day. But, I mean, I was maybe 18 or 19. And there was a an elevator crashed in an office tower downtown So all the reporters were sent out, pretty much everybody in the newsroom went out to cover it. And I asked the city editor, could I go as well? And he said, no, because you might get hurt and I would lose my job. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, at that point, I, I knew there was no arguing with him. And so I just decided I would... Try being an edit, a, a reporter and editor at another paper.
1: Right. You didn't want to deal with that kind of hanging over your head of you're here as a family, were going to treat you differently.
0: Yes. And I would never get the real experience. Yeah. That was my feeling.
2: Makes a lot of sense. And so, so, what do you do at that point then? So,
0: then I waited until I graduated from college. I went to Denison. And then in 1980, I decide I heard about a, a job opening at the Dallas Morning News. Mm-hmm. I thought that sounded like a great place to be because there was this newspaper war on, one of the last great newspaper wars in the country. And people were talking about Dallas. And I went for an interview and I was hired, ended up staying there for the rest for the next 40 years, not at the morning news, but in Dallas. Mm-hmm. One of the first people I met was Burrell Osborne, who was brought in as editor shortly before I arrived. And he interviewed me. And um, then years later, should I skip ahead to?
1: One thing before we kind of jump ahead is for our listeners who might not know, what, what is a newspaper war?
0: Oh, a newspaper war. Well, an effort among two newspapers to try to either put the other one out of business or get more readers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a war over circulation readership. So you're trying to poach
1: listeners and poach, well, readers, sorry. Yes. You try to
0: put out a better product and one eventually wins. Mm -hmm. I mean, cities used to have, you know, four and five newspapers back in the twenties and thirties, but, and then they whittled down and that continued for a long time. And here we are with very few cities now that have more than one paper.
1: Right. That makes a lot of sense. Cause like you see, like in Columbus, we have the dispatch and not many, but not much people else. Right. So because you can only, most people can only afford or only want to buy one local paper. Right, right. It's an
2: interesting industry too, because it's like, it, it becomes quite uh, mon- monopolistic, uh, if I could say it. Yes. It, like just naturally, right? By the fact that like you only have so much attention and so much time as a human. And so to think that you're going to have multiple newspapers that are going to be able to get that attention and actually be successful in a city is not really realistic. So just by nature, it's like one eventually rises to the top. And then all of a sudden, once you get there, you kind of have it. Hard covered, break in. Right? It's yeah. very hard yes. to, to, to break into that. Right. Exactly. And so when you jump across the country though, you go all the way to Dallas, that point, were you well were you well known? Did they know that, you know, you came from uh, the dispatch yes. and you had a long history? I there? was
0: not well known, but I, I they knew that my family was in the business. Mm-hmm. And I think they knew that I had help getting the job. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I was interviewed and I went through all the sort of process of being hired i i did have help i mean most reporters don't start out at the dallas morning news they've right. worked at a newspaper that's much much smaller than that before they get there but one of the things that i was lucky about was i was given the job of covering well my beat was and that just means that i you know the area that i focused on was an area of Dallas called Highland Park, which Mm -hmm. is the ritziest, wealthiest suburb probably in Texas, maybe one of the wealthiest in the U.S. But they put me on that beat. And that sounds like a pretty boring beat, except those are the readers that both the Dallas Times Herald and the Dallas Morning News wanted the most. And so if you could get those readers, then you were pretty much set Mm -hmm. and other readers would follow and it was very important. So my stories, which were not that important really, were ending up on the front page because that's where, you know, they wanted those readers to see them and, and think this is the paper we want to read.
1: Yeah. So you meet Burl, any idea? So I guess what I'm curious about is you meet him for the first time in that interview and kind of get the conversation with him. Anything going through your head at that point? Like I think I'm going to write a biography about this guy someday. Like what, well, did he have that sense of, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Presence. At? Presence. Did he have yes, that presence of, like this did. guy is going to be He had big? great
0: presence. Mm-hmm. He was five feet five, mm-hmm. but
1: Go short that's guys. what he
0: says on his driver's license. I think he was more like five three yep. because when I, I'm five two. And when I stood up next to him, we were about at eye level. I mean, we, we were about the same height but he seemed so much taller. He mm-hmm. had this great presence, this great aura about him. And people said it all the time. Women were attracted to him, even though he had this sort of gnome-like look to him. <laughs> he was not, you would not see him and say, oh, there's a good looking man. But women found him very attractive because he had this, he the it factor. Mm-hmm. He was, he um, was, very interested in what the person he was talking with had to say. Mm-hmm. Totally focused on them. He really appreciated women in business and was very respectful of them and thought highly of them and promoted women. But men liked him as well. He was just a really, really likable guy. Yeah. And one of the things that I've tried to point out in the book is that it's possible to be a good guy and do the right thing and finish first.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: I'm already inspired by the story. I mean, we got... Oh, the height thing you. going on. He's in, short. In my, yeah, women like that. I really him. feel like I can make it. This guy, like, yeah, he's like
1: yeah, he's, a, he's going, you know, <laughs> up on my list. Um, and So,
2: how long are you at Dallas before you eventually move on and then and go about getting into more of writing your own and going about the book thing?
0: So, I was on the city desk for I think four years, and then I left and wrote the Murkison book, my first book, and then they asked me to come back as society editor. And society writer, columnist with column four four days a week. And in most cities, you would think that's not such a great job. But in Dallas, it is still to this day a really big, a really big job writing about society. Who wore what to what party that you can't believe it, but it is. Mm -hmm. And so I did that for, I think, three years. And then I left to write my second book, Blood Rich. Yep. Um, And that was about a Texas family. Mm -hmm. Then I had a child, and I decided to be a stay-at-home mom, and so I didn't do a lot of writing for a period of years. Fast forward to, Burl died 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. and a couple of years after that, his widow came to me and said, would you be interested in writing a book about Burl? And I thought about it for about three seconds and said, yes, Mm -hmm. I would. And it happened to be when she, it was actually a little bit later, it was after the 2016 election, and... At that time, reporters were really getting hammered. Mm-hmm. Reporters, writers, the press, the media was just, you know, was being called the enemy of the people. And reporters, according to some people, mm-hmm. at big rallies were.
1: Right. You know. We, we don't have to name names, but yes, there were we some people. Name, out
0: there. We won't name names, but words like "alternative facts" right. and fake, things like that were fake news. Fake news. That was a big one. Were in the vernacular, and I thought. If ever there's somebody that was not an enemy of the people or somebody that uh, exhibited at all the qualities that, that these you know, corrupt reporters are not, that would be Burl Osborne. Mm-hmm. And so I was really excited for, to write it and have people read about somebody that had so much integrity, who insisted on accuracy and fairness and honesty in their reporting. Mm-hmm. He did for himself and then did among his staff, he insisted on it.
1: Was there any sense of, maybe being overwhelmed isn't the right term, but a sense of, because you knew the man, you knew, yeah, pressure, pressure to get it right, pressure to exemplify who Burl is and was and what he did. Because, you know, the way you talk about him, it's clear that he was not only a, a, probably a mentor to you, but also someone who, you know, made a big impact on your life. Did you get any sense of pressure like that to get this right?
0: I didn't feel pressure per se, but I, having written two other biographies, I felt the more people that I spoke with, the better the book would be and the more accurate it would it would be. I mean there may be a mistake or two in the book that always happens, but you were asking earlier about how many you know, how do you know when you've when you've got all your facts right, how do you know when you have the story? And I think I, because I interviewed 100 people, and those were competitors, business associates, a few enemies, friends, family, his doctors, I saw all of his medical records, I read letters and financial reports, and I, because I did so much research, I, don't, I didn't feel any sort of pressure to, I didn't feel like, Ooh, I hope I'm getting this right. I just Mm -hmm. didn't feel that way.
1: No, that makes a lot of sense. And, and so a lot of the book, we talk about a few things, right? You talk about the newspaper war, you talk about Burl's life, kind of how he got and his impact on journalism in particular. With your unique perspective, I'm curious, how does a guy like Burl, who's in Texas, impact journalism, say in Columbus and at the dispatch and, and in other places? Like how does, what, what, what was his big impact and how did that translate to other cities and other places?
0: Well, What was his impact in Columbus? Mm-hmm. Well, he was working at the Louisville, Kentucky Bureau of the Associated Press in, 19, in the spring of 1972 when he got a call from the higher ups in New York at the Associated Press saying, we want you to go to Columbus. We have a problem with the bureau there. And so he came to Columbus, not really knowing what the problem was, but it turned out that The bureau chief was not running a really efficient bureau. And his idea of covering the news was, I guess, going out and playing a round of golf in the morning, having a three-martini lunch, and then coming back to the office and yelling at most of the the reporters and the staffers that were in the bureau. And so in comes Burl, who's very soft-spoken, who, if he's upset about something, it's hard to know it he treated the staff with respect. He is an extremely hard worker mm-hmm. and very driven to beat the UP, beat the United, United press international, their competitor and just do a really great job. And so he, um, turned the bureau around very, very quickly. I mm-hmm. think within two years it was up and running really well. And, um, so he had that impact. And so because the AP was better in Columbus, mm-hmm. the whole state, newspapers across the state, and there were a lot of big, important newspapers in Ohio, they all did better. Right. They all became better products.
1: Because you're getting better information from yes. um, that source. Yes. Yeah.
2: And, and what about his early life? Like you mentioned about the coal mines and his rise right. up. Who was he as a person and where did he come from? Like the background kind of like we're almost curious about with you in the beginning, of the first question we asked, what does that look like with Burl? Well,
0: Burl was born in a Kentucky, an Eastern Kentucky coal camp. So the the company, the coal company owned the town of Jenkins, a little tiny town. And Burl's mother was, I think, 16 when she gave birth to him. His father had a second grade education and he worked in the coal mines. And it was just an extremely humble beginning for him. When he turned 12, He was feeling awful, and the family, something they didn't often do, but they took him to a doctor, and the doctor said, you've got nephritis, which is a kidney ailment, and these kidneys will fail very soon. They're going to get progressively worse. They're not cleaning the body of the toxins in the body, from the toxins in the blood, and they're not operating the way they should be. And you're going to get sicker, and probably very soon. And you won't live beyond your teenage years. And you'll probably also go blind any day now. So he that's was, a
1: rough diagnosis.
0: That it, it, he was devastated. Yeah. And he suffered from kidney disease for the next several years. Then had one of the earliest kidney transplants in in the world in 1966. And at that time, there were a lot of People, a lot of doctors who said, don't get the kidney transplant, you'll either die in the operating room or your body will reject the kidney. And there's no point in it. That, I think four out of five or five out of six doctors said, don't do it. But Burl, being a big risk taker, said, I want to do it. You know, this is how I don't want to live being tied to this kidney dialysis machine. I'm going to try and go with the transplant. And they said, okay, go ahead. But, you know, good luck. Mm-hmm. We're not expecting great things to come from this. And it ended up that his kidney, which is, was donated by his mother, ended up lasting 25 years instead of the wow. what they thought would be five years. Wow.
2: That is an incredible story. And so- in order, you, you, can you give up a kidney without dying? Like, does mother yes, pass yeah, away? Yes, stupid you, only question? Uh, no, no, you only need, you need one. You can live fine uh, with okay. one. got it, got it. Yeah, I was just but testing both of you guys. Be, that like, is the correct answer. You have answer. to
1: be very, very closely related genetically. Like, most of the time, it's yeah. only relatives who can do it. And every once in a while, someone will find a kidney that's a close enough match that's not a relative.
2: You know what's interesting, though, is when you hear about people that have these kind of incredible, charismatic, very attractive personalities, you often hear about some type of adversity at an age, uh, like one of those pivotal ages that yes changes your outlook on life right and then, I think so and so like it, it sounds like that almost impacted him in a way that influenced the way that he went about the rest of his life and career
0: it absolutely did and people were amazed at what a hard worker he was and how he lived every day to the fullest. He said, I'm going to live every day as though it's my last, which it could have been because the kidney could stop functioning at any point. Mm-hmm. They, they knew that. And so he was determined, and he loved reporting and writing, and he loved the Associated Press. He was determined that the kidney was not going to kill it. you know, that he was not going to die from kidney disease. And when he died, he had a perfect kid, I mean, the kidney was operating perfectly. The fact that he had that ailment and suffered from kidney disease for most of his life Inspired him to work extra hard, I think, and to try to be a really good person.
1: So it sounds trite, but yeah, no, I mean it, it. makes it makes complete sense, though. I mean, those are the things that change who you are, yes, and, and how you live your life. So, I mean, it makes complete sense. If people were to go out and buy Burl, if they bought it and read it, what would you hope they take away from it?
0: As I mentioned earlier, one of the things that impressed me most when I think of Burl, and I hope I portrayed this in the book, is that he. Was a good guy who finished first. Mm -hmm. He was well-liked. He was straight down the middle of the road when it came to not allowing any bias in the newspaper. He got along with all the people that he chose people to work for him that were top-rate people. I guess I would want people to see that it's possible, A, to be a member of the media and not be a bad guy, but also that you can be a good person and well-liked. You don't have to be a terror mm-hmm. to to make it to the top.
2: Yeah, And this is a bit of a, I mean, it's it's related to that, but it's a bit off the cuff from the actual outline so we can either uh, answer or nix it. But as you look back on the books that you've written and you've studied dynasties and people that have, have reached great success and wealth and... Uh, you've been a part of one of the most historic families in Columbus's history. And you look back and you say he he was a good guy and he finished first. What do you think it was about him that allowed him to do that? Because I think a lot of people, they don't always come across as good guys when they finish first because it's, you almost think you have to be a little bit ruthless things. And I, I don't right. necessarily think that's true, but it's hard to balance those two things, right? Yes. So how do you think Burl was able to do that?
0: Well, I think one, he felt lucky every day to be alive. He would often say, you know i'm happy to be here in fact i'm happy to be anywhere because mm-hmm. he didn't know at any point when his kidney would stop operating if it would um when it would stop functioning mm-hmm.
1: how come all nice guys don't get there what was different about him that that like cuz i guess and i hopefully i'm getting your question right but like not all nice guys do, didn't right. do that. So right. what was different about Burl that allowed him and, and helped him to be not only like a good person, but also to succeed and move up and and reach the pinnacle of his career?
0: I, I think part of it was that he felt very lucky and very grateful to those that had promoted him. He moved up the AP ladder very quickly. He was grateful to them. He was grateful to the Dallas Morning News for hiring him. The doctors that see patients, uh, that see executives that come to the Dallas Morning News, you have to go through a physical. And the doctors typically say yes to everybody that comes through the door. But to Burl, they said no, because of his kidney kidney. issues. And also because he had scar tissue on one of his lungs, which was from an earlier, it was, it was not important, but Mm -hmm. the doctor said, we, we recommend you not hire this person. But the, the owner of the paper said, I am so impressed with this Burl Osborne that I'm going to take a chance and do it anyway. And so he did. And I think Burl was extremely grateful again and again to all the people that gave him a
2: chance. Hmm. What about the experience of writing this book compared to the other ones? Like how, how have they each differ, they've they all kind of yes. been a similar experience.
0: Well, they're very different. Each one is. My agent said to me, Jane, now you've written two books about, well, they were both Texas families. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, they were not, All that, such great guys. I mean, yes, they did a lot with their lives, but maybe they weren't quite as admirable as you'd want them to be. So, well, my the book that I wrote before Burl was called Blood Rich and it's about Oscar Wyatt. And Oscar Wyatt, I don't know if you are familiar with him, but he Texas Monthly wrote about him and said he was meaner than a junkyard dog. Mm-hmm. And he did deals with Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was a good buddy of Oscar's. Oscar eventually went to prison. Mm-hmm. And so at this point, my agent said, why don't you write about somebody that that's nice, that's <laughs> likable, that's a good guy? And so this was the perfect opportunity. They right. The b- books were total, total opposites.
1: I'd imagine it was probably also a little bit I mean, maybe happier is the wrong word, but you got to reminisce a little bit and more enjoyable to research.
0: Yes, than certain yes, other books, so. to, to, to be writing about somebody that's not great buddies with Saddam Hussein.
1: Hey, everybody. Mike here to talk quickly about an amazing local organization, Casey Cares. And Casey Cares is hosting its inaugural 5K One Mile Walk on September 11th at Lower.com Field. The event is super special as all of the proceeds go directly to help the brave, critically ill children in our community as Casey Cares creates little moments and lasting memories for those who are battling for their lives. Casey Cares knows that the best palliative care comes from continuous ongoing support. And for families whose faith, relationships and pocketbooks have been stretched to their breaking points, these programs with a special touch may be the only break many have from hospital stays and doctor's visits. To join and Columbus in supporting this amazing cause, you can register for their upcoming race by going to caseycares.org. That's C-A-S-E-Y cares.org. Participants will receive a T-shirt, finishers, medals, and will be able to enjoy post-race refreshments on the plaza at Lower.com Field. If you haven't been there, Lower.com Field is amazing, so we definitely recommend you go check it out. But we look forward to seeing you there. Don't forget, you can go to caseycares.org for more info. Thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get on with the show. You know, we talked a little bit about writing biography, but what what do you think the biggest challenge is with getting a biography right? Uh, I mean, is it just like earlier we talked about talking to all the people? Is it gathering the information? Is that the biggest challenge or is there something else like when you're actually writing it? Like what's the biggest challenge of getting it right and knowing when you got it right?
0: For me personally, the research is always a lot of fun. And so I, I go overboard. I always have more research by far than I can use in the book. And I feel like I pretty much get the story right. For me, the writing of it is always very difficult. I find writing extremely difficult. You all know Fran Lebowitz, Lebowitz, who is a satirist and she talks about writing and she's wrote two novel or uh, two nonfiction books years ago back in the 80s and she hasn't written anything since and she says there's only one job that's more difficult than writing and that's coal mining. <laughs> and I agree with that. yeah <laughs> so the writing of it is is difficult for me.
1: Mm-hmm. Another question. So you came back to Columbus, right? You lived in Texas most of your life. Right. I'm guessing you probably visited time time as you were in there, but were you surprised by anything coming back to the city?
0: Yes, I'm surprised. Well, it's changed a lot in 40 years, but I'm, I've been surprised at how diverse Columbus Mm -hmm. is, much more so than Dallas. Dallas is a much bigger (laughs) city than Columbus, but it's much less diverse than
1: Columbus. Mm -hmm.
0: And I love that diversity. I just, I think it's wonderful. It makes the city so much more interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dallas is also experiencing a lot of immigration, though, so maybe heading up the uh, diversity ladder here right. soon. Josh, you got anything else before we head towards our, our last questions?
2: I was just going to talk a little bit about your goals for the future. You know, outside of the books and what else you have going on, your motivations pressing forward, do you think you'll, you'll do another book soon? I mean, I know it's hard to look ahead, but you're just now releasing this one, but have you thought about that at all?
0: Yes, I was. In fact, I was working. I've started working on my next book. And the subject is Jerry Mock. I don't know Mm. if you've heard of her, but she was the first woman to fly solo around the world in 1964. Mm -hmm. Most people think it's Amelia Earhart or somebody right after Amelia Earhart, but Jerry, right here from Bexley, was the first to do it. And I've started researching a book about her life. Some of her family's still around and they've been very helpful and I've had a lot of good access so far.
1: Huh. So why does everybody think it's Amelia Earhart?
0: Because there was so much publicity about mm. Amelia, and that's just a name they know when they think of a woman flying around Earhart, the world.
1: Yeah, Earhart. Maybe it's just the fact that the name is yes. very uh, you know, right. very reminiscent. But
0: but so many people have never heard of Jerry Mock. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm just surprised that the number of people who say to me, No, who's that?
1: Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And so uh, you know, last couple questions of the show here, Jane. And the first one is do you have any advice for our listeners out there? Our listeners are all typically in the Columbus area, somewhere between young professionals and in their careers, but all interested about Columbus, what's going on in Columbus and and everything that we have here talking about today. Yes. Any, any advice for them that are thinking about where they're going or what they want to do with their career?
0: Well, I would just say that one of the things I learned writing this book is the importance of taking risks mm-hmm. in business or in whatever profession, because if you don't take a fairly big risk in life, you Probably aren't pursuing the top goals that that you have, and um, I have this needlepoint pillow that I love that says, "And the trouble is, if you don't risk anything, you risk even more." And I, I think that's—I I, would—I mean—that's one of the thing to, things I learned from Burl. He was a big risk taker, and it's a uh, good thing. Have you
2: have you noticed that same theme across all of the successful individuals that you've studied yes, throughout writing? Yes,
0: absolutely. Yeah. They I, all are risk takers. I mean, Jerry Mock, who, I, as I said, I'm working on now, she just decided to take her little Cessna 180 and fly around the world. Mm-hmm. She was a board housewife. And she said, I, um, this is not how I want to spend my time. And her husband said to her, well, why don't you fly around the world? And so she did. Yeah, That was a big risk.
1: Yeah. That brings us, I think, relates kind of nicely with our last question of the show. It's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. Without telling you too much about why we chose that phrase for uh, a podcast focused on interviewing successful people in and around Columbus, what do you think of when you hear it? How does it apply to your life and career?
0: I think living outside of your comfort zone is what it means. Mm -hmm. I think living uncomfortably means doing something that is good for other people, but that you might not enjoy yourself. In my case, I, I was thinking about this because I know that's the theme of your show or one of the themes. And I thought... This might not sound like the worst, the, a big hardship, but I moved to France, to Paris with my daughter when she was seven. Mm-hmm. It was just the two of us. And I spoke no French. She mm-hmm. spoke not a word of French. And we moved there and she had a fabulous time because she learned the language in school. and But it was very difficult for me the whole time I was there. Mm-hmm. And I think not speaking the language is a serious way to be uncomfortable.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jane, thanks so much for joining us and really appreciate you coming on the show talking about the book as well as your career so thanks so much for joining us
0: well thank you for having me
1: yeah and if you guys want to meet jane while well, she's doing a book signing at gramercy books gramercy books on the 6th of september what time on the 6th it's at
0: 7 p.m
1: 7 p.m gramercy books 7 in p.m bexley. in bexley yes go check it out go buy a copy of the book meet jane get it signed right boona book sign yes yeah so get it signed Thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to hear more interviews just like this, go ahead, hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you are listening on. We release every Monday. So uh, appreciate your support. We'll talk to you next week.